0: Hello friends, welcome to Emmanuel Cares Casting Nets and Raised with Jesus podcast. Yes, three podcasts hosting the same content, wonderful content as we are looking through the book of Job together in an online way. You don't need a Bible sheet of any kind. Just sit back, listen to me read from the Evangelical Heritage Version and discover together how we can find peace through life's unpredictable paths. You did it. You made it to the end of Job. Well, you didn't make it to the end of Job, but you've gotten to chapter 38 of the book of Job. Here I am in my office. Today, I'm using my standing desk. I'm actually standing behind this desk. If it looks a little different, it's because it's a standing desk. Uh Normally, I do these videos in the afternoon in between Bible classes, but I had something else come up. So now, Today, it is after all the Bible classes have been done for the day. It is just you and me and your favorite beverage. So join me in a sip of your favorite beverage. It'll be awesome. Go. Go. It's really good. Your favorite beverage, my favorite beverage, enjoying it together as we are looking at Job finding peace in life's unpredictable path. Today we're going to look at another well. We've talked before about the well of why and how it's dry. The well of why is dry. There's nothing there, no water to quench your curiosity, no water to quench your uh, questions. But today we're going to look at another well that is overflowing with water, but before we get there, we've got to have a storm, a storm that comes to Job. The first question I had on the sheet was, you know, Elijah, when he was depressed and thinking he was the only one left, um, w- when he was all by himself, the Lord came to him, not in a storm, but in a whisper. And so the question is, why does the lord appear to in a storm to job we don't have an answer to that but it was a thought question why does god appear to job in a storm and most of the answers given today were well he wanted to get the job's attention another person said well if he came in a still small voice even after all of the things that Elijah experienced of all uh, the sto- the earthquakes and, and things of that nature, Job might still wonder if that really is the Lord who is in control over all things. And so Job, uh, hearing the Lord's voice from the midst of a storm, would remind Job that who he's talking to is the one who creates the big things like the storm. So that, I thought, was a good comment. So let's get into it. Chapter 38, of the book of Job. Then the Lord responded to Job out of a violent storm. He said, Who is this that spreads darkness over my plans with his ignorant words? Get ready for action like a man. Then I will ask you questions and you will inform me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand anything about it. Who determined its dimensions? I'm sure you know who stretched out the surveying line over it, who supports its foundation, who set its cornerstone in place when the morning stars sang long, loud songs together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This is a reference to the angels of God who are often called the sons of God, also called morning stars. We had some discussion in both Bible classes about uh When the angels were created, were they created on the first day of creation or were they created on the fourth day? On the fourth day, uh, the credence for that is the fact that they're referenced as stars and God created stars on the fourth day. So that's that correct, that, um, correlation. And the other thought is that, uh, the angels were there on the first day when God created the earth so therefore they were created on the first day they're created beings as the Bible tells us Um, they're spirits, ministering spirits so we are not told is basically the answer but if you had to have me choose between day one or day four I would pick day one uh, because of of what we hear here in Job when they're singing when the earth uh, is set in place but again uh, that's just my opinion that isn't thus saith the lord that is just if i had to choose between the two and of course you can in that point say you know pastor have you considered this and i will gladly consider it especially if it's from the scriptures verse eight who locked up the sea behind doors when it burst out of the womb When I clothed the sea with clouds, when I wrapped it with thick darkness as its swaddling cloth, when I broke its power with my decree, when I locked it behind barrel-double doors, I said, you may come this far, but no farther. Here is the barrier for your proud waves. Have you ever in all your ways given a command to the morning? Have you ever set a a time for the sun to rise, so it may grab the earth by its edges and shake the wicked out of it? We really like that phrase, shake the wicked out of it, not because we want uh, the wicked to be shook, shook, but just that picture of the wicked don't do evil things during the day. Uh, we think of how people usually are inclined to do uh, sins at night rather than during the day and how the sun shine sometimes weeds out those things. That's the picture that uh, the Lord is giving to Job as well. So it's true, even in the days before neon lights and nightclubs. Verse 14, the earth's shapes become visible like designs impressed on clay, and its decorations can be seen like those on a garment. Their light is withheld from the wicked, and an uplifted arm is broken. Have you ever traveled to the sources of the sea and walked around in the dark depths of the ocean? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Do you comprehend the vast expenses of the earth? Tell me if you if you know all this. How can someone get to the dwelling of light? Where is this place for darkness? How could you lead it to its property? Do you know the way to its house? You must know that since you were born before it, and you have lived for so many days. Have you visited the warehouses where the snow is kept? Have you seen the warehouses where the hail is stored? I have reserved them for troubled time, for days of battle and war the warehouses kind of threw uh some folks today just that and and the picture of course is that god is in control of the entire uh weather system so the idea that if god could um wanted rain to happen or or snow to happen at this location in a in a in an other than normal sense he knows how to work all the weather patterns and all of the the currents and all of the precipitation so that if he wanted to dump a bunch of snow at one location he could so the warehouses of course isn't that god's got some big barns up in heaven but just the idea of the hidden nature of of the weather where it seems like everything follows a pattern that rain is given in a certain way but then unexpectedly you get a ton of snow or a ton of hail Where does that come from? Well, that comes from the Lord who is in control of the entire weather system. Verse 24. What is the way to the place where the lightning divides, where the east wind is scattered over the earth? Who has excavated a channel for the floodwaters and a road for the rolling thunder? They bring rain to lands where no one lives, to a wilderness without a person in it. The rain satisfies the wilderness and the wasteland and causes the dry ground to produce green plants. Does the rain have a father? Who is the father of the drops of dew? Whose womb produces the ice? Who gives birth to the heavy frost from the sky? The water is disguised as stone and the surface of the deep is trapped under ice. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loosen the belt of Orion? Can you lead out the constellations at the right season and guide the bear with her cubs? Pleiades and Orion are names that we recognize from the greek constellations but some of these constellations that are mentioned are not uh, from our uh, greek and western understanding which makes sense since job isn't from greece but from the middle east and that's why the bear with her cubs is kind of a well what is that is that you know uh the big dipper and little bit dipper or is that something else and we leave that to um job's original hearers to understand we certainly understand the point point that the Lord is in control of all of the constellations that he brings them out one by one and not only is he is he a god of order a god of that's involved in his creation but there's a beauty there isn't there uh, maybe uh, think about that as we read as we continue to read how God is admiring the beauty of his own creation do you know the laws that govern the skies can you establish God's rule on earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds so that a flood of water submerges you? Can you unleash the lightning bolts so that they come and say to you, Here we are? Who has placed wisdom in the human heart and given understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds and empty the water jars of the sky when the loose dust has been poured into mold, to harden and the clouds of dirt are cemented together? Who, can you hunt prey for the lioness? Can you satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens as they lie in wait in the thicket? Who prepares its provisions for the raven when its young are screaming to God while they thrash around in the nest waiting for food? That's chapter 38. Chapter 39. It's a continuation. And as we get to chapter 39, I would like to ask you a question Why doesn't God directly answer Job's question? God says it's not fair. Uh, Job says to God, it's not fair. Why doesn't God answer that question? Why does he ask Job questions about his creation instead? That's the question for you to think as I continue reading from chapter 39. Do you know the time when the antelope on the cliffs gives birth? Do you keep watch over the doe as she is in labor? Do you count how many mal- months they carry their young? Do you know when it's time for them to give birth? They crouch down, they give birth to their fawns, their labor pains are over, their young are lively and live in the open countryside. They go out and they do not return to them. Who set the wild donkey free? Who untied the restraints of the onager? The Onager is just another term for a wild donkey in the... In the in um that portion of the world i have given it the wasteland as its home the salt flats as its dwelling place it brays at the commotion in a town it does not listen to the shouting of the river it explores the mountains as its pasture while it searches for anything green is a wild ox willing to serve you will it spend the night at your manger can you lead the wild ox down the furrow with a rope will it work the fields and the valleys behind you Will you depend on it because it is so strong? Will you rely on it to labor for you? Will you trust it to return your seed grain and to bring it to your threshing floor? The wings of the screeching ostrich flip, flap wildly, but they do not have feathers and plumage like a stork's. She leaves her eggs on the ground and she keeps them warm in the dust. She forgets that a foot may crush them and a wild animal may trample them. She is hard-hearted toward her children as if they were not hers. It does not bother her if her labor is for nothing, because God made her forget wisdom. And she has not given her any, and he has not given her any understanding. But as soon as she jumps to run, she laughs at the horse and rider. Did you give strength to the horse? Did you clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Did you give it the ability to jump like a locust? Its snorting and neighing are frightening. It paws at the ground in the valley. It rejoices in its strength. It goes out to meet the weapons of war. It laughs at danger and is not afraid. It does not turn away from the sword. A quiver rattles against it. A spear and a javelin flash. Shaking with excitement, it swallows up ground. It just doesn't stand there when the ram's horn sounds. As soon as the ram horn sounds, it neighs and snorts. From a distance, it smells like battle. And thunder of the commanders and the war cries, Did you teach the hawk how to soar as it spreads out its wings to the north? Is it at your command that the eagle flies high and makes its nest in a lofty place? On a rocky cliff it settles down to spend the night, on a pinnacle of rock in a mountain stronghold. From there it spies its food, its eyes spot it far away. Its young ones drink up the blood, whatever the carcasses are, there it is. The Lord responded to Job and said, Will the one who makes up charges against the Almighty dare to correct him? The one who accuses God should make his case? That's that. Now, what do you think is the reason why God didn't answer any of Job's requests and instead just talks about creation? Why doesn't he uh, answer him and instead says to Job, where were you? If we're going to be on a level playing field, God says, are we really on a level playing field? If you want to put me on trial, do you really have the authority to put me on trial? Do you really have the uh, the case to actually say God should go on trial? And... Um we had a really a long discussion on Job's response whether it's repentance or not so let's get to that in verse 3. Job answered the Lord and said, "No, I am insignificant. How could I reply to you? I will put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I cannot defend it twice, but I will not go any further." So the question is was Job repentant here? That's really is the question uh to ask ourselves and the answer really is given to us in verses 1 and 2, because God asks him, will the one who makes charges against the Almighty dare to correct him? Basically, it's a summary of everything that God has said up to this point. Uh, Where were you, Job, when I created the world? If you were here, then we can have this conversation. Then we can talk about whether I'm being fair. If you were there at the creation of all of these animals, these beautiful animals, which, by the way, Members were saying, you know, the way that he described these animals and really tells you that there's a design behind these animals and an artist behind these animals. As he, as God, has created the world with this powerful word, that word is also a creative and and um, a creative word in that it has different ideas and it isn't just going to create a an animal with four legs and there's nothing no variance there's no beauty there's no um uh, options <laughs> right if you would if i were to create an animal i would pro- quickly run out of different o- options for what kind of four-legged animal i would have but god doesn't seem to run out of options you got a bird how many different kinds of birds can i come up with and the lord said guess what i'm going to come up with a bird That doesn't even fly, but acts like a bird. Um, My, we had some chickens that had some uh, chicks, and one of the hens, who is a brooding hen, so you expect that brooding hen to be motherly toward the other chicks. She just went out and attacked them. Well, this brooding hen acted like the ostrich, cold toward the younglings. Um, It's a bird. That's the way they are. That's the way God designed them. When they're brooding, they're a lot more violent than they are the rest of the times of their lives. They're a lot more docile the rest of the days. But when they are uh, charged with taking care of their eggs and protecting their eggs and watching over their eggs, they can become very violent. Anyway, I got chickens in the Bible class. I mean, that's like I got to cross that off some sort of list. So anyway... The Lord is asking Job, who are you to talk to me? And Job says, I'm nobody. But that isn't quite the same as repentance. It is just Job saying, I'm not going to say anything. Uh, you got me, God. And then the Lord's going to finish off his statement, and he is going to, um, then Job is going to repent. And Job is going to specifically repent of his question, questioning of God of why. And what's going to happen now is we've gone from God making the point, compared to the huge universe, Job, who are you? And now God's going to go even closer to Job and say, compared to even the animals of this earth, who are you? So, chapter 40, beginning at verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job from a violent storm. He said, get ready for action like a man, and I will ask you questions, and you will inform me. Will you really deny that I am just? Will you convict me so that I can be acquitted? Do you have an arm like God's arm? Does your voice thunder like his? Go ahead, please. It always sends chills up my spine when the Lord says, Please. Adorn yourself with dignity and and honor. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. Pour out your overflowing anger. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Trample the wicked where they stand. Bury them all together in the dust. Cover up their faces in the hidden place. Then I will praise you and admit that your right hand can save you. And now uh, the Lord's going to bring up two animals, the behemoth and the leviathan. Some scholars look at the behemoth and the Leviathan and said these correspond to animals that we know of today. For example, the behemoth is like an elephant or a hippopotamus, and the Leviathan is like a crocodile. Unfortunately, the description of the behemoth and the Leviathan don't fit uh, the domestic animals, especially since the behemoth uh, seems to uh, elephant and hippopotamus don't have tails like cedars. A second explanation is to look at these two animals as if they're fanciful creatures, like they're not real, like they're fantasy creatures, except for the fact that God says, I created them. So there's a specific mention of God creating these beings, so they are real. So what's your third choice? The third choice is that these are dinosaurs, or what those dinosaurs' bones represent, animals that once existed existed, that no longer exists. So the behemoth is a big animal from the land, and the Leviathan is a big animal from the seas. And we talked about the Leviathan before, and Leviathan is mentioned before, but let's get to the text. Look at how they're described. What do you think, uh, what was the point that God was making by comparing Job and mankind to these great creatures? Verse 15 of chapter 40, take a look at behemoth, which I made just as I made you. It eats grass like cattle. Would you look at the power of his hips and the strength of his muscles, of his body? He stiffens his tail like a cedar. The tendons of his thighs are tight. His bones are tubes of bronze. His skeleton is like bars of iron. He stands at the head of God's creatures, but his maker draws near with his sword. There it is. There's my answer, right? Is the idea of God can tame these animals. Mankind can't. God can. Uh, Who's Job? Who are you again, Job? Who are you? Verse 20. Yes, the mountains carry their floodwaters to him. All the wild animals play there. He lies under the lotus plants, hidden among the reeds of the marsh. The lotus plants cover him with their shadows. Poplars by the stream surround him. The river rages, but he is not frightened. He remains calm even if the Jordan burst into its mouth. Can people capture him by his eyes? Can they pierce his nose with a hook? Piercing his nose with a hook is just that a uh, picture of submission. If you've got an animal that you are um, putting into submission, you'd put a hook in their nose, a ring in their nose, and then you could lead them wherever you go. So it's kind of like a halter on a horse, that kind of thing. 41. The Leviathan. Can you pull out Leviathan with a fish hook? Can you tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a reed in its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will he keep asking for your favor and speak tender words to you? Will he sign a contract with you so that you keep him as your servant forever? Can you play with him like a bird? Can you put him on a leash for your girls? Do the merchants barter for Leviathan's meat? Do they divide it up with the other tradesmen? Can you fill his hide with harpoons in its head with the fishing spears if you lay your hand on him you will never forget the battle and you won't do it again listen any hope you have of overcoming him is unfounded wouldn't you be knocked down by the mere sight of him no one is fierce enough to risk stirring him up who then can stand before me who can confront me and demand that i repay him everything under the whole sky belongs to me I will tell about the parts of his body. I will describe his power and his beautiful design. Who can strip off his outer clothing? Who can touch his double layer of armor? Who dares to open the doors of his mouth, which is surrounded with terrifying teeth? His back is like rows of shields, and which are tightly joined together. So you think of uh, uh, some sort of reptile there, right? Verse 16, they are so close together, not even a breath of air can pass between them. They are fastened to each other, and they stick together and cannot be separated. His snorts are flashes of light. His eyes are like the eyelids of dawn. Blazing torches come out of his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours out from his nostrils. Oh, this sounds like a dragon, right? And then you go, well, maybe this is a fantasy creature. And then the the, the flip side of that is... Um, there's actually somebody in Bible class today said that they did find, uh, some way somebody has figured out a way for these animals to actually do this. Um, now whether or not they have evidence that there were animals that do this, that's another story, but the plausibility of animals who can breathe fire has been determined. You probably can Google it and find something. Regardless, it doesn't matter if we can, if we can replicate it. We know this is God's inspired word and we've eliminated uh, the other possibilities. And so it has to be uh, some sort of animal that exists. The point of it being that it is a sea creature. It is untamed by man, but God has tamed it. And who is Job again? Who is that guy compared to God? Um, not worth mentioning, right? But, Because of God's grace and favor, favor, Job is mentioned. I for lost my place. Uh, Maybe we look at verse 22. Strength dwells in his neck. Despair dances ahead of him. The folds of his flesh are compact, solid, and immovable. His heart is as hard as a rock, as hard as a lower millstone. When he rises up, the mighty are afraid. So here's the rising up part, uh, it tends to lead us away from the Leviathan being a crocodile of some sort because it's sounding as if, um, he uh, gets up like a, like a dragon does or like a dinosaur does, like Jurassic Park. And then later on, he's going to talk about his belly uh, not being smooth like a crocodile or alligator's. Okay, verse 22. Twenty-five, I should say. When he rises up, the mighty are afraid. When he thrashes around, they retreat. If someone strikes him with a sword, it has no effect. Neither do spears, arrows, or javelins. To him, iron is like straw. Bronze is like rotten wood. Arrows do not make him flee. To him, sling stones are like shaft. Clubs are like stubble. He laughs at the shaking of a javelin. His underbelly is like sharp pieces of broken pottery. He leaves marks in the mud like a threshing sledge. He makes the depths boil like a cooking pot. He makes the sea like a cauldron of ointment. There's some interesting picture here where he is so hot inside that he affects um, where he is in the water. He leaves a shiny wake behind him. The deep looks like a white-haired man. There is nothing at all like him on earth, a creature without fear. He looks down on everything that is lofty. He is king over every proud creature the leviathan now if i could just take a second here to talk about scary monsters if you're a dad or a parent and and you're wondering should i talk to my kids about scary monsters we did a podcast pastor will harley and i talked about scary monsters of the bible both in the old testament and in the new and the why we brought that up is we said there is two main points you can talk about when you talk about scary monsters of the Bible. One point is that scary monsters can be defeated. So if your kids are scared of things and and GK Chesterton said the the reason why we have and I'm gonna paraphrase, but on the podcast we have an exact quote. GK Chesterton says the reason that we talk about dragons is not that uh Kids are, for, to make kids scared. Kids are already scared. The reason why we talk about dragons and things like that is so that we tell them that dragons can be beaten. Why Why does God bring up the Leviathan and the behemoth? Not to scare Job, but to remind Job that those animals can be beaten by the Lord. They are. He's in charge of them. And the second reason we want to talk about scary monsters of the Bible is to remind ourselves of the scary monster that lies within. Our human heart is a scary thing, but again, that also can be beaten uh, through the Word of God. Chapter 42. Job's confession, the Lord's absolution, and the resolution of the of the whole book, Job responded to the Lord. This is verse one. He said, "I know that you can do all things; no purpose of yours can be thwarted." You asked, "Who is this who spreads darkness over my?" Pl-? Oops, I gotta actually have this on the screen. Verse three. You asked, "Who is this who spreads darkness over my plans with his arrogant, ignorant words?" I have made statements about things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will ask you questions and you will inform me. My ear heard about you. Now my eyes see you. So I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Job repents. He no longer asks why. God, the why well is dry. Um, I, I, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have asked why. However, he finds another well where the water is overflowing, and that well is the well of who God is and what God has done. With the assurance that this God, who is created all things, who is in charge of all things, is a God who is working everything out for the good of His creation, who is managing it all who is a God of God, a God of justice, right? Justice has to have a source, and God is that source. That's who he is, uh, is one who's going to avenge those who wrong him or wrong others. He's eventually going to balance the scales. This God is the God who created Job. And Job reminds himself, oh, this is who you are, God. I've heard about you. My eyes now see you as I, that, that fills me up and it reminds me I despise myself. My new person inside of me despises this part of me that wants to ask why. Now we had a long discussion as sometimes when, what was Job's sin? Was it that he had a lack of faith or lack of trust in God and We have to be very careful because that seems like that's one answer. And for the Christian, a lot of times there's going to be two forces at work within you. And I'm going to illustrate those two forces at work in a story. A girl's father goes to Jesus and says, Heal my daughter. Jesus says to him, everything is possible for him who believes. What does the man say? I do believe. That's one competing force. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's the other competing force. Two things at the same time. Two things wrestling in the heart of the individual. That oftentimes is what's going on in Christians. They they believe in Jesus as their savior, but they're struggling with something. The fact that you're struggling doesn't mean you have a lack of faith. It just means you have two competing things. And with Job, he has that in spades throughout this book. That he believes in God as his redeemer and savior, that his God is going to bring justice on the earth. And this God is the one who's going to save him and bring him to heaven. But at the same time, he struggles with why. Why is God allowing this to happen? So, dear Christian, find peace in this unpredictable path of life, and understanding. Sometimes you're going to have two sides of yourself: the one, the part that believes, and the other side that is struggling with something that God has said. All right. The conclusion of the book of Job Chapter verse seven. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and your two friends, because the two of you have spoken none of you have spoken correctly about me, as my servant Job did. Um The question was asked, wait a minute, does that mean this all this stuff about the Leviathan, the behemoth, and all of the other things that was only spoken to Job? Yeah, yes does kind of sound that way, doesn't it? That the Lord spoken to Job, spoke to Job personally, and now he speaks to the friends. And to me, that's amazing how the Lord uh, is so um, imminently personal with one of his believers, and how personal God does. That's That's how God operates. He personally comes to us in the body and blood of his son, Jesus Christ, in the bread and wine, in the Lord's Supper. God makes it very personal. He puts somebody in our life also who's going to speak to us God's word and to be God to us as they speak God's word. Uh, Very personal. Anyway. Anyway. Verse 8, now take some seven bulls and seven rams for yourselves. Go to my servant Job and offer up the whole burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you so that I will look upon him with favor and not deal with you on the basis of your foolishness. For none of you have spoken correctly about me as my servant Job did. Here we see grace for the three friends, right? God doesn't just sit there and stew in his anger, but also um, confronts them of their sin, but then also forgives them through his called servant Job. Um, none of you have spoken correctly about me. We've often said throughout the book of Job, some of the things the friends said were true, but not true for Job. And, well, how can God say you have not spoken correctly about me when some of the things they said were true? And the answer to that is, um, in Luther's explanation to Hallowed Be Thy Name, we want to speak... And proclaim God's word faithfully. Any aberration of God's word is an aberration against God and His name. So, just the fact that somebody else uses God's name, but then also at the same time doesn't uh, speak truthfully about God, is guilty of this, right? Of guilty of, of breaking against on um, the third commandment, which would be the Sabbath day. We fear and love God that we do not despise preaching in his word, but gladly hear and and learn it. So we want to be able to um, not just communicate God's name, but communicate it correctly. And so I'm always, always open to individuals saying, point out to me if I've erred in God's word and I'll correct myself because God's word is what's important and not me and my own personality or me being right. Um, It is always about God's word. And conversely, if someone's going to speak about God or speak up for God, uh, they had better make sure, and and do that to me, they had better make sure it's in line with God's word. Uh, Because it really, that's really what matters. Not that people speak a half-truth about God, but that they speak the full truth. Shouldn't that be what we're all looking for? Isn't that what we all should be striving for? Not just to speak the truth, but speak the truth, all of God's truth for God's word. So Eliphaz, this is verse 9. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, went and did as the Lord had told them, and the Lord looked with looked on Job with favor. Then the Lord restored Job's fortunes after he had prayed on behalf of his friends. The Lord gave Job twice as much as everything as he had before. Twice as much as significant and um We'll go into that in a little bit. Then all his brothers and sisters and all his acquaintances came to Job. They dined with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him concerning the tragedy that the Lord had brought on him. Each of them gave him one quesita of silver and one gold ring. Then the Lord blessed the last part of Job's life more than the first part, so that he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys." Now, if you go to Job chapter 1, you'll find that at at the very beginning it said that Job had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. Now, he's got twice that. Now, all of these animals in Job chapter 1 were killed and destroyed. Also, in Job chapter 1, you'll see that Job had seven sons and three daughters. Now, what you expect in Job chapter 42 is that you would have 14 sons and six daughters, but you only have seven sons and three daughters. And somebody in Bible class said, well, I bet you Job's wife said enough is enough. Or it could be, if Job is such a strong proponent of the resurrection and the life after this one, perhaps his seven daughters and three da- and I'm sorry, not perhaps, his seven sons and three daughters are in heaven. God doubled what Job had. Now he has 14 sons and 6 daughters, but half of them are in heaven, half of them are here on earth. That uh, sheds the light Job's concern in chapter 1, because in chapter 1 you're kind of wondering, or uh, whichever chapter it is where Job makes the sacrifice for his children, you kind of are wondering, well, are these uh, children scoundrels or, or not? Are they followers of, of God or aren't they? Chapter 42 uh, puts that matter to rest. And then he names his daughter, which we thought was fascinating because oftentimes daughters aren't named at all. Um, and I don't know why I can't read the whole bottom in... On YouTube, so I'm just going to read the the end of it, and those of you who are watching on YouTube will just have to listen to the sound of my voice as I finish this off. He named his first daughter Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. In the whole land, there was no women as beautiful as the daughters of Job. Their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and and their children to the fourth generation. Job died old and fulfilled by a long life. We noted here in Bible class that uh, we're never mentioned the age of Job at the beginning, but we're given uh, 140 years after uh, this event. So uh, they're always curious how old was Job. How long did it take to double his animals uh, to what he had before? That's the book of Job Finding Peace on an Unpredictable Path. What are some of your takeaways from this book? Some insights that you did not see before as you're looking at the book of Job? Write those comments down below. If you like this video series and would like to uh, be informed of further ones, make sure you subscribe. Uh, and if you want this video to be seen by others, make sure you like this video, and that helps the YouTube and Google algorithms um, share this video with others, and I really do appreciate it. It has nothing to do with patting myself on the back. I don't want to be uh, the next YouTube sensation. I just want people to be in God's word, and I hope that this will be a, a tool for them to do that. So as we close, uh, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and for sending us your Son, which reminds us of your great love for us uh, in the midst of life's uh, unpredictable paths. When life throws us a fast one, when we're not sure why things, certain things happen to us, when we're pondering down that well of why and it is dry, turn our eyes and our hearts to look to you that we would look to the well of who you are and what you have done, for that well is always overflowing, for your word always reminds us of a God who is a big God, who is also a God who is um, concerned about little me and little others as well. Help me also to show love and compassion to those around me who are suffering, that I would share with them who you are and what you have done, so that they may also drink from this well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, that's it. We'll see you on the next video, right? Bring your favorite beverage. um, Bring your Bible. uh, Bring your mind and your heart as we study God's Word and make those Bible connections.